We stand to honor at times those who are worthy of honor and the word of God is worthy of honor. So you stand with me as we read God's word. We'll be reading in verses 10 uh, through 14 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Dropping down to 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having as shoes for your feet. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and infallible word. May the grass wither. And the flower fade, may the word of our God stand forever. You, though, you can sit back down. I forgot to acknowledge, that right before I read our scripture this morning, that um, speaking of missionaries, Bo and Sarah Dugan are here. Uh, they're in from Birmingham, England, where they've been working with CO there to share the gospel. And they're one of our supported missionaries. If you notice a cacophony of noise uh, even louder than normal in our foyer, I think it was because of them. So thanks, guys. Um, we're, um, we're grateful to have you um, and your new baby. Well, um, kids, you, you may have not known this, but there's, when I was a kid, in between, um, in watching a show, there would be these breaks called commercial breaks. And, um, and they were really important because you, you were stuck. You had to watch them. Like, you had to watch them. Uh, you couldn't fast forward through them. There was no such thing as, like, streaming services. And so because of that, commercials were a lot better than the stupid, idiotic commercials we get today. Right? And, 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 and I want to, just out of pure, just out of pure, like, my own personal entertainment, I want to share with you my favorite commercial from uh, being a kid. Go ahead, Jackson. Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, what makes you the best player in the universe? Is it the vicious stunts? No, Mars. Is it the haircut? No, Mars. Is it the shoes? No, Mars. Is it the extra long shorts? No, Mars. Is the shoes it, right? Nah. Is it the short socks? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. That's how commercials ought to be made. Not athletes talking about how everybody is against them when they make $300 million a year. It's got to be shoes. It's got to be the shoes. Now, listen, you may have Jordans, and a lot of people in this church, including, you know, old worship leaders, uh, start to wear shoes uh, that are Jordans. My pre- I'm partial to Jordan 11s. You may have Chuck Taylors if you're really old school. You may have Chacos if that's your vibe. You may have Jimmy Choo's if you have the money or on clouds if you're that kind of soul. You may even have Cinderella slippers, but the shoes that are most valuable and that you most need that the passage this morning talks about is gospel shoes. Gospel shoes. They're not blue suede shoes. They're gospel shoes. And your shoes may, in this world, may give you extra lift and effort comfort and extra style but they can't give you what gospel shoes give you. We've been looking at the armor of God. We looked at the breastplate of light righteousness and the belt of truth, and this morning we come to gospel shoes. We're going to jump right into it. Really just want to have two main headings this morning as we look at gospel shoes, and it's what they give you. What do they do for you? What do gospel shoes give to you? When I was a kid, uh, one of the rage shoes was pumps, and you would have this little basketball on the front of your shoes, and you'd pump them up, and then supposedly the extra tightness 
would give you extra air. They were also the heaviest shoes I think you ever wore. And so my already uh, inadequate uh, ability to jump was decreased even more. But the gospel shoes actually do something for you. So let's look at what they do this morning. First of all, gospel shoes give you peace. They give you peace. What the gospel of peace that is being referred to here when it says that you are being given the readiness given by the gospel of peace is referring to the good news. The good news that you are now in Christ Jesus reconciled and restored to a relationship with God the Father in heaven. That you are accepted and you are welcome in his presence. Now this is radically important if you're somebody who has experienced the fact that you are distant from God, that you're separated from God. The Bible tells us that you have a need for peace and that need for peace is not a well-funded, doesn't come from a well-funded retirement account or great vacations or from children that obey or a body that stops hurting, but the peace that you most need is peace with God who has done away with your sin, and who has reconciled you into right relationship with God the Father. This is the greatest longing of the heart. Even if we run around seeking to find rest and restoration and peace and so many other things, this is the thing our heart most longs for. Her name was Daisy. She was born in Chicago. She was the eighth of 10 children. Money was tight and times were hard. And money got even tighter when her father found alcohol and he began to drink his paycheck at the corner pub each week. And he was not a nice drunk. When he got drunk, he was mean and angry and belligerent. She remembers cowering in the corner of the kitchen when her father kicked her younger brother and sister, literally kicked them across the kitchen. This was just a prelude to the most horrible day of her life. It was when her father told her mother that by 12 noon that Saturday that you need to vacate the house. I never want to see your face again. And the kids clung to their mother's skirt and they wailed and they begged their father to change his mind. But come Saturday at noon, he grabbed her arm with bags behind her and marched her out to the sidewalk with her two suitcases. The kids were then scattered to various homes Some went to live with friends, others with distant relatives, but one kid lost the lottery. One kid had to stay with dad. That kid was Daisy. And Daisy only hardened towards her father as her life went on. The other kids got as far away as they could from their father. But she, she grew a tumor of resentment and bitterness It only hardened as life went on. Her brothers and sisters joined the military. They joined the Peace Corps. They did everything they can to literally physically and geographically get as far away from dad as possible. But Daisy was stuck with him for her entire childhood until she turned 18, and she too was able to get away. Dad eventually guttered out as a hopeless drunk. And then one day he walked into a Salvation Army rescue center hoping to get a free meal, but they required you to attend a chapel service before you got your meal at the Salvation Army Center. And and so he went into the chapel and someone offered to pray with him and told him about the love of Jesus Christ. And he believed and he repented and it stuck. He then resolved that despite the fact that he had made a mess in the shambles of his life and of his family, that he was going to repent and he was going to spend the rest of his life seeking to be restored. It became his mission 
And that is a lot of children to get restored to. Ten kids. He called them. They didn't believe him. They ignored his letters and refused to take his phone calls. They wouldn't meet with him. They believed it was a fad. They thought it would pass in time. They knew that re- they thought that really all he wanted was money from them. But he actually really did love Jesus. And he really did change. And little by little, child by child, he reconciled with every one of his children. Every one but one. Daisy. No, not Daisy. In fact, for five years, he lived six doors down from Daisy on the same street. On the same street, she passed the house every day where her father lived, but she never stopped in. She never said hi. She never allowed for a face-to-face meeting. And then the word came that he only had a few weeks left. He had cancer and he was dying, and still, still Daisy wouldn't go. But she did send her five-year-old Margaret, Margaret down the street to spend time with her grandfather. When Margaret knocked on the door and the door was open, the old man looked out and saw little Margaret. And what do you think he said? He didn't say, oh, Margaret. No. What he said was, oh, Daisy. See, in the thrones of death and in his medicated fog, he thought his Daisy had finally come home. He wanted so badly He said, Daisy, Daisy, I knew you would come. I knew you would come home. I knew you would come and see me. The person, the author who chronicled this story concluded with this line. This man was so passionate and so deeply longed for restoration that he literally hallucinated reconciliation and grace. Reconciliation with one you love especially with the need you have for it for the, with your Father in heaven, is the driving longing and desire of your life. There is a pain in your heart that runs much deeper than any other pain. That there is no pain like being separated in relationship from your father or from your child in a familiar relationship. And some of you know this pain in the earthly sense, don't you? Time after time over the last couple of years, I've had parents Adult parents with adult children who are alienated, which they don't spend time with their kids, they don't, aren't allowed contact with them, they aren't allowed to see their children, and this eats them up. We long for restoration. It's what we were made for, was to be in right relationship with God as our father. Hemingway, in his essay, tells the story of the father who put an ad in the Madrid newspaper in which he said this, Paco, meet me. At Hotel Montana at noon, and he simply said this, all is forgiven. And when the father arrived there at that day at the Hotel Montana at noon, Hemingway said there were 800 Pacos outside. He was making the point that we, while we are alienated and we are, we are disconnected and we are separated from others, that the greatest longing is to be restored. We long to be to be restored, because to be in separation and in alienation from someone that you love is hell. And that is actually what hell is, literally. Hell is separation from God your Father. To not know his face of love and acceptance and welcome, and to only know his face of judgment and wrath. Separation from God makes us a, ma- a sad, miserable, insecure people longing to make up in every form of relationship that we have with work and others, 
the ache that we feel over our separation from God. And we were the ones who created the alienation. We divorced God. God made us and walked with us, and we said, God, thank you for your creation. Now, peace out. We want nothing to do with you. We've got it from here. And how has that gone? It's not gone well. There is no peace between us and God. The Bible actually says that we are now enemies with God. We are against him. We hate God naturally. Voltaire, when he was dying, was asked by his maid, have you made peace with God? And Voltaire quipped, I never knew we had quarreled. Now, that is a nice flippant answer by Voltaire, but he's a twit. That he doesn't actually recognize and acknowledge the fact that we know deep down is that, that we are enemies of God without Christ Jesus, and the greatest need that we have is to be made right with him. And what keeps us from God? It's not God's longing to be merciful. It's not God's longing to be back in a relationship with us. It is our sin. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says this. Behold, the hand, Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear you. We divorced ourselves from God, and our divorce with him was nasty, and it was personal. Because divorce is personal. Divorce is personal and painful. Gwyneth Paltrow, when she, I think it was the lead singer from Coldplay, that when they got a divorce, she called a divorce a conscious uncoupling. What an, un, an idiotic, vapid term. Conscious uncoupling it was a divorce, and divorce is mean and ugly and painful, and the sting goes with you for the rest of your life. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has done everything when we were running from him to reconcile us to himself. When we were running from him, God and his son took the steps and took the initiation to pursue his very enemies, those who hated him, and to say, I love you, Be, come home, come home to me. This is why when Jesus comes into the flesh in the incarnation at the birth of Christ, when we sing the Christmas carols, what's one say? Hark the herald angels sing, peace on earth, God and sinners reconciled. The angels said it as well, right? When they say, came to the shepherds, they say, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because there is now peace between God and man upon whom God's favor rests. And what we're talking about here when we have the peace of God is not simply the lack of a fight, but it's when not only is the fight over, but you now as his child, his restored child, experience his favor, his blessing his welcome, his affection. And how do you get his favor to rest on you? How do you become God, the object of God's reconciling and that you're accepted and loved by God? Here's how you have it. Here's how you have this kind of peace. It's because Jesus lost peace. Because Jesus didn't simply, what he did in the cross was not simply physical death, but there was, he lost peace. That when he goes to the cross, Jesus does not go to the cross sanguine and happy. He doesn't skip his way to Golgotha. 
Jesus, on the night before he's betrayed, he is sweating drops of blood, and he is crying out. He is in agony. His soul is being ripped up. Can you see it? He is not oh, in a centered place. No, he's lost all peace. And why has he lost all peace? Because he's lost God the Father. There's no separation. He has had unity and peace with God the Father for all of eternity, and now he has lost it. Bill Lane, who's a commentator on the book of Mark, says this about the scream, the way Jesus dies. He doesn't die in a medicated hospice facility in a sanguine place surrounded by everyone he loves in a happy and peaceful way. No, it says this, crucified criminals ordinarily suffered complete exhaustion and for long periods were unconscious before they died. But there is a stark realization, realism of Mark's account that describes the suddenness and violence of Jesus' death. The cry of dereliction, which is the last cry which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, expresses unfathomable pain. And it wasn't the physical pain. It was the loss of peace. He had lost his father. And because of that, though, because he took your sin. He took your guilt. He took your running. He took it upon himself. And God the Father put his wrath on him. Jesus lost peace. And because he lost peace, you can have it. You can have it. You can now be the favored one, the blessed one. Because we looked at last week, we looked at what we call the big 50 cent theological word, justification, that you are declared right before God. And gospel shoes is now the second part of that, that now because you are declared right before God, you're accepted and you are declared righteous and welcome in the sight of God. It is, it is not simply a judicial declaration. It is a judicial declaration that is then followed by the welcome of arms open. That is what gospel shoes are about and the peace of God that God is not against us any longer he is for us he is for you he is for you and he walks beside you the great blessing of the gospel of peace these gospel shoes is that you can have peace with God that the wall of hostility has separated presence with God and you can enjoy it every day and so what Paul is saying as that this gospel of peace, it does something in our spiritual warfare. It does something in our spiritual warfare. That there's something about this truth that makes you ready. Ready. You see, gospel shoes don't just give you peace, but that peace, God, gospel shoes makes you ready. Ready for what? Ready for what? Well, what's the role of shoes? Well, here, we have a lot of roles for shoes, right? I mean, you walk into a modern American closet, and you like, there's shoes that look like you should be going to Mars. There's shoes that look like you should be like trying to kill somebody with the heel of it. There's shoes that look like you've like killed a large animal and put all the fur around your feet. There are all kinds of reasons for the various shoes that we have. But Paul is talking about a Roman soldier's armor. Why did they have shoes? Well, remember, what did battle look like then? Battle, in our, in our, we don't understand battle from back then, but battle back then was simply brute force. It was one group of people running full speed and clashing into another group of people. 
And the group of people who are defending territory suddenly have a hundred people run into them. And what do you have to be able to do? You have to stand. Because if you, in a scrum like that, that's what old war looked like. It looked like medieval war. It looked like, a, it looked like a rugby scrum or a football line of scrimmage. And if you lost your, lost your footing, you were dead. You were dead. And so what you had to have is you had to have shoes. And so Roman soldiers, one of their technological advances that they began producing is they began to produce shoes that not only were they wrapped up high all the way up to the knee so that they were secure and tight, but they drove nails through the leather of the shoes so that they had the first what we would understand to be cleats. That it gave them stability and traction that when they, when they had the enemy coming towards them, they dug their heels in so that they were stable they stood firm. That's the image that Paul has when he's thinking about this. And that fits with the context of what we looked at this morning and the passages that we read in verses 10 through 12. What's it say in verse 13? Stand firm. Stay, withstand. When that wall of the enemy and his affliction and his attacks and his suffering comes into your life and it hits you like a 300-pound lineman, stand firm. And so the gospel piece, what it does is it makes you ready and makes you ready to stand firm against the attacks of the evil one. And what are the attacks of the evil one? Their hardship, their affliction, their difficulty, their suffering. And he does so by bringing all kinds of things into your life. He does so to make you anxious and to make you ineffectual, to make you a person who is full of despair and worry. He wants your soul the evil one wants your soul disrupted and your heart in distress and torn up inside. He wants you to lack all sense of assurance and all sense of confidence. He wants you discouraged and he wants you in turmoil. And he wants you in view of your distress to living a life seeking security apart from God. He wants you running to anything in the midst of hardship that might give you a sense of momentary peace. So whether it's chemical or financial, he's happy to have you running for that momentary peace. Understand the devil's schemes. Well, look at two things this morning in regard to the devil's schemes and readiness. Consider how he attacks you. One, he loves for nothing else for you to seek peace in this world in something other than what you're provided in Christ Jesus. Anything, anything. And so I ask you this morning, what kind of shoes do you have on? Are they gospel shoes or are they shoes that are described in some other ways? Are they shoes that are able to provide you a stability and assurance even though things are hard? Do you have shoes on that when you slip in sin and fall prey to temptation and you're falling backward will give you stability? Or do you have shoes that you're like, man, this is going to be trying to like get in traction on ice. What kind of shoes do you have? We are a people in our generation as Christians that are known for our anxiety and our worry. That we are not a group of Christians that are known for our soul rest. It is not what characterizes my generation of believers. We are anxious and worried about power and place and possessions. We are obsessed, obsessed with our security. Now, let's just give you an example of what I'm talking about here. I'm going to use financial Stability and instability 
as my main point of application illustration this morning. If your confidence, if your shoes are financial, are called financial stability, then you are on very slippery shoes, right? Think about the, the heyday that the devil can have if your sense of peace and rest is in your financial stability. He attacks the financial standing in your life. The water heater goes out. The transmission blows. You have too many kids, and they eat up all of your money. And in the face of you seeking to find that financial footing again, what does he bring in your life? He's got you where he wants you, slipping and falling and unstable, and now he can bring infinite number of temptations into your life. I need my financial stability, so what does that make you? Stingy, overworking, unethical, obsessed with the bottom line at work, uncaring, and ungenerous. He can just leverage that. By you leaning into that as your financial, that financial peace is your peace. That means it's your rest and your security in this world and he can use it to bring all sorts of havoc into your life. If your peace is in something other than God, if your confidence is around finances or approval, then your life is going to be a tossing sea of unrest. Up and down and all over the place. Your life is like the man who builds his house on the sand you're always going to have cave-ins and break-ins emotionally in your life. Some of you have been wired from the earliest age to believe that you've got to keep it all together. That's how your peace comes. I keep it together. I keep my world manageable. I keep my house under control. I keep my life small. <laughs> and you can feel the tension in your body Trying to do that and trying to hold life together is like having two hooks connected to your stomach and to your guts or in your chest. And what happens as you get older? Does life get less tense and easy or does it get more tense and, and more difficult? It becomes more difficult. And so what happens is you, as life goes on, man, those hooks just dig in more and more and that wire is tighter and tighter and tighter and what do you feel inside? You feel like you're being torn apart. Because you're trying, your, your voice and your mouth is saying that my peace and my foundation is in the Lord, but ultimately my peace and my foundation is my ability to keep my crap together. And you can't keep your crap together. And you're breaking apart. Is the ground of your peace and security Christ or is it something else? Here's a diagnostic question for you. To diagnose your heart and your life, simply ask yourself this, what do I need to be okay? That's how we call it, Right? Soul rest is just kind of the vernacular. I'm not okay. I'm just not okay. I'm not at rest. I'm not at peace. My life is disrupted. What do you need to be okay? Or what are those things that come into your life that make you go, I am not okay? I am not okay. The scheme of the devil is to get you to trust in something else for soul peace and soul rest. But here's the other way the devil would love to disrupt your peace. He would love nothing else than to rob you of the peace that that you have by bringing trials and suffering that would dis disrupt the peace that you can have in Christ Jesus, the peace that you have with God. He brings suffering into your life and difficulty, things that are terrifying and that they are fearful and that they are threatening and they are painful, and then he uses those attacks to sow lies, lies that question the peace that you have with God. And what are the lies that he sows? They're the same lies that go all the way back to the garden. Did he really say, 
Is he really good? Does God really love you? Are you sure things are good between you and God? Is God punishing you? He barrages us with affliction so that he can sow lies. With physical pain and financial sorrow and disrupted relationships, the goal of the attacks The goal of these attacks, the things that you see outwardly in your life, the difficulty, the evil one would love to use those things to disrupt the peace that you have as the reconciled, restored, and accepted child of God. And he would love to return you to a place where you are fearful, feeling unwelcome, and feeling as if God is against you. So there's a sense in which there's a particular need in our hearts at the place where we can ground or we must ground our peace is a sense of assurance and confidence in what God has done for us. That's what it means to have sure footing in this. I have sure footing in who God says I am and what God says about my relationship. Here's the gospel of peace. The good news preached to your soul in the face of afflictions of evil is the resource that we need to ground ourselves and to ground our footing when life gets hard. And the evil one would love to twist it to destroy you. Let's go back to our financial standing example. You get that unexpected bill, the transmission goes out, the roof leaks, the investments in the retirement account takes a downturn right before you're supposed to retire. Now in that moment, what are the lies that the evil woman loved to sow? What would he like to say? And how does the gospel of peace actually combat that? Lie one, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. What's the gospel of peace say? The gospel of peace says you were once an enemy of God. If you got what you deserved, it would be way worse than this. A broken transmission would be the least of your problems. And yet he has not given you what you deserve. Second lie could be, God isn't good. What? What does the gospel of peace tell you? The gospel of peace tells me that I was his enemy, and yet when I was his enemy, it was in that state that he looked upon me with love and affection. That he pursued me, and that he is so good that he was willing to die for me. How can you say he is not good? He was willing to go this to these lengths to prove his love and affection for me. Third lie could be this. God is punishing you for your failures and sins. What does the gospel of peace say? The gospel of peace says this, that he has taken all, not in part, but in full, all my sin, and he has bore it, and he has nailed it to the tree, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's what the gospel of peace tells you. Fourth lie, God is not near you in this. God is far from you. He has forgotten you. I mean, if he was here, he would not have allowed this. You know, the great blessing of the gospel of peace, the most immediate blessing, is the blessing of God's presence. What does Romans 8 say? What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How, he will, not, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Here's the punchline. Separate us. You have his presence because of the gospel of peace. He is there with you when your kid runs off. And he is there with you when the budget is tight. He is there with you. You see, this is a piece, this is a piece that if you preach to yourself and if you used it as the weapon in your warfare, that when you are reeling back in the midst of difficulty, that you use this to give you footing, to give you footing. That in the midst of the chaos and hardship, because this is the peace that gospel peace brings. Gospel peace is not the peace that the world brings. Let me give you an illustrate the difference between gospel peace and the world's peace. There was a, uh, an art class at a Christian college where there was various assignments handed out to sets of two students. Each Two students would get the same assignment to express some sort of theological concept or something about the Christian life artistically. And one of the assignments to these two students was that they were to draw peace in the Christian life artistically to express this. And the first student drew a beautifully serene landscape, pastoral scene of beauty and loveliness and rest, you know, the babbling brook and the, the lowering sunset and the lush grass. But the second painter painted a raging storm with lightning and wind in a desolate place full of rock and hard scrabble ground and in the very corner and crack of the painting was a small bird in the cleft of a rock. And the teacher in giving evaluation said that both paintings displayed beautiful artwork and skill, but the second one communicated the truth of peace that is true for the Christian. That the Christian can stand in the midst of the storm and they have a rock to hide in. See, the peace that the gospel that Paul gives here is not a peace that is always dry-eyed. It is a peace in which, yes, you're in the storm, but you're crying. It's a peace that's in the midst of tears. It's not a plastic or made-up peace. The peace of God is a peace that is compatible, compatible with funerals, and it's a peace that is compatible with the heartache of a loveless marriage. And it's compatible with a strapped budget. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says this, let the peace of Christ rule. The word there for rule is actually more, most literally understood to be, the, may it be the umpire. That the peace of Christ is the umpire. It calls the balls and strikes of your life. It calls things as they really are. That the peace of Christ dictates what you believe about what's going on around you, not your circumstances. Is this the truth in the reality that gives you peace and rest circumstantially and subjectively? Is this where you go or is it something else? You know that this truth about God taking your sin and making you welcome and accepted in his sight, it actually can help you in the midst of affliction. And we actually have an account, it's one of the more famous accounts in Christian history where this is the case, where someone used this exact truth in the midst of sorrow and suffering to ground them. Many of you know this story. His name is Horatio, and he was a wealthy attorney in Chicago in the 1800s. He had many estate holdings all around the city of Chicago. If you know anything about the great Chicago fire, you know, the cow kicked the bucket or something like that and a fire started and all of Chicago went up in flames and so did all his properties. He lost his wealth. 
That was nothing. That was just a, an appetizer of suffering. Two years later, he was taking his family, his wife Anna and their daughters, on a ship across the ocean to England where his daughters were going to be in school because all the, the schools in, in Chicago still hadn't been rebuilt. And so right before they're about to go on the, on the ship, he finds out he has to take care of some business thing, and so he sends his daughters and his wife on ahead of him, his four daughters and his wife Anna. But as they're on the ship, the ship enters into a midst, the midst of immense fog, and it collides with another ship on the way over across the Atlantic, and the ship sinks. Anna, his wife, was found unconscious by a rescue ship, but his four daughters, all his children, were drowned and gone. Anna, upon arrival in England, sent him a cable that said just two words, saved alone. Spafford immediately departed to join his wife in her grief and sorrow in England. As they're trolling across the Atlantic Ocean, they came near the place where he, where the ship that bore his wife and children went down, and the place where he lost his daughters. It was in that place that he then penned the words of the hymn that you may know well. It's called It Is Well. It says this, though Satan should buffet and though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. And then what I said earlier, keep going. My sin, in the best line of all of hymnody, the conscious awareness where he gets caught up in his own emotions and he puts it into lyric form. My sin, oh the bliss of this oh glorious, of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now, that's so weird. What does that Christ dying for my sin have to do with four dying daughters? Everything. Everything. Do you know why? Because look, look, when things go wrong, one of the ways you lose peace is you ask the same questions, and the evil one loves to sow those seeds of lies that I mentioned earlier. Maybe I'm being punished. No! You're not being punished when your children, when you lose your children. All punishment fell on him. Another thing, maybe God doesn't care. No, look what he did for us. Look what he bore for you. Of course he cares for you. The Bible gives you a God who says... Yes, you may have lost your children on this earth. But God the Father looks at you and says, I lost my child. I gave him up voluntarily so that you may be my child for all of eternity. How does a man write a hymn like that in the face of such suffering and loss and affliction? Maybe it's the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. Let's pray. Lord, I, I may not have touched on the suffering that people are dealing with in this room this morning. I mentioned financial loss and insecurity, the, the loss of wayward children, the separation of that, the difficulties of anxiety. But Lord, there, there may be so many other things and circumstances in this room that are going on that is disrupting our souls. And that the evil one would love in this moment and in this week and in this season to sow lies. And there are folks in this room who are reeling at the sorrow and the suffering that they're experiencing. That the doctors can't find an answer to the physical problems. And they're exhausted and they're weary and they're wondering where you have gone.
Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd gird them up with the good news that you've gone nowhere, that you're right there with them. Lord, there's so many other forms of suffering I can't even address, but Lord, I pray that this morning by your Spirit, I thank you that he's alive and well, that you would take these particular applications. Lord, where, where are they hurting? Would you come and, and press in the good news in the specific way in which we need it this morning? Help us to apply this good news, this gospel of peace, to where we need good footing and a strong foundation. Would you give that to us by your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.